welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome. This is series 13 and episode 4 in which we discuss the tragic failure of the disciples at the time of Jesus's arrest and trial. Two very sad stories are going to be told in this episode. One about Peter and the other about Judas Iscariot. We're following the story through on the night, the Thursday night of the last week of Jesus's life. And from Thursday night into the events of Friday morning, this night is filled with uh, activity. And if you've been following the episodes beforehand, you'll know something about the story, which we'll just quickly remind you of uh, before we get into the details of, of what we're going to talk about in this episode. As you'll probably be aware, series 11 and 12 have been telling the story more broadly about the last week of Jesus's life and how he came into Jerusalem in triumph on Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, and then went into the temple compounds and overturned the market traders' tables on the Monday, and then spent another day in the, in the temple compound on Tuesday, where there was a confrontation between him and the religious leaders with question and answer and debate. And then on Wednesday, we find him in Bethany, just outside the city, where he's at a meal and Judas Iscariot decides at that point to leave the group of disciples and to head off to the city to betray Jesus to their religious leaders. That's the broad background of, of the context here. We're in the Feast of Passover. Jerusalem is crowded full of people and the main Passover feast uh, is due to take place on the Friday. So the whole week is building up to a major religious celebration. But while all that's going on, the, the bigger story is the conflict between Jesus and the religious establishment. And on the Thursday, uh, Jesus spends the evening with his disciples in what has become known as the Last Supper, which we looked at in some detail in the second half of series 12, with lots of different teaching and events that took place during that supper. From our point of view, a very notable thing was that's the moment when Judas Iscariot uh, left the table, left the meal and went back to the high priest and the religious authorities for the second time and uh, told them where he predicted Jesus was going to be a little bit later on in the evening. He got his prediction right because Jesus left the upper room in the city of Jerusalem where he'd been sharing the meal late at night and walked out of the city down into the nearby valley, the Kidron Valley, and stopped towards the bottom of that valley at a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. John 18 tells us that Jesus often went there with his disciples and Judas remembered that. So he said to the rulers, uh, let's go together to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I think we're going to find him there later on in the evening resting. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He spent time praying and agonizing over the events that were about to happen. And then suddenly, while all the disciples were uh, sleepy and Jesus was trying to wake them up, uh, Judas appeared with a great crowd of uh, temple guards armed with uh, lots of lights, lanterns, so that they could see 
and he betrayed Jesus with a kiss. This led to his arrest and all the disciples scattering to many different places. And that's an important point for our story today. But what we've seen in the last episode is that Jesus was taken to the high priest's home, which is in the city. Uh, and all the distances here are very, very small, easy walking distance. He was taken to the home of the high priest. The high priest's name was Caiaphas, the senior religious official in the land who ruled over the Sanhedrin council and uh, had authority over the temple and all the other priests working there. So the scene that we saw in the last episode is the scene uh, in which the first of our two events takes place that we're going to look in this in this uh, at it in this episode. And so the scene from our last episode is that Jesus is uh, taken into the high priest's house and the Sanhedrin council members are hastily uh, gathered together in the middle of the night. They're literally uh, called upon to come from their homes, from their beds, from their rest and from their sleep in the middle of the night to uh, have a trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. And in our last episode, we see that false evidence was brought and was ineffective. Jesus was very quiet, but Jesus answered positively when the high priest said, Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And he said, You've said so, I am. And then he predicted that he would come back again in glory to this world. At that point, the high priest accused him of blasphemy, tore his robes. They condemned him. They spat on him. They hit him. And they prepared to hand him over to the Romans in the morning. That's the scene that we have to keep in our minds. That's what's actually happening at this particular time. And now we're going to just trace the story of two of the leading disciples in terms of their actions at this particular time. We're going to look first of all at Peter's story, and then we're going to look at the story of Judas Iscariot. We'll start with Peter, and we'll start in John chapter 18, verses 15 to 18, and then we'll go to Matthew's Gospel in a minute. John 18, verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I'm not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood round a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Now, the interesting thing about this account is that there's an anonymous disciple here who was known to the high priest. There's been a lot of discussion about who this disciple is. And I think the best suggestion is that this is John himself. 
You'll probably remember that he appears anonymously in the text as the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, first referenced in John chapter 13 and mentioned several times um, after that. John didn't like to identify himself by name and he is probably known to the high priest because John's gospel indicates a very close knowledge of the city of Jerusalem as if he had some direct contact with the city. He writes about events in Jerusalem for much of the time in his gospel unlike any of the gospel writers and he may well have been known to the high priest it could have been another disciple, but I'm assuming it was John for the sake of our discussion. So you'll remember that the disciples scattered in the Garden of Gethsemane. As soon as Jesus was arrested and uh, taken back into the city, they went off into all sorts of different places. They went back to the places they were staying or to see friends or uh, maybe just to gather themselves and try and work out what had happened and deal with their shock. But it appears that two disciples, probably John uh, with Peter, went to the courtyard of the high priest's house. They wanted to find out what was going to happen with Jesus. They had uh, a little bit of focus in their mind to try and find out what was going on. But Peter couldn't get into the courtyard because he wasn't known to them. And it was only the other disciples' introduction that allowed him into the courtyard. Servants are in the courtyard and in the house the trial is going on that has been described in the last episode. But the servant girl questions Peter and he, interestingly enough, denies that he's a follower of Jesus. This is all taking place during the night. Peter's in a state of some shock Matthew chapter 26 verses 69 to 75 takes up the story and gives us a little bit more detail. Let's read it. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You were also with Jesus of, of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. What a terrible situation. What a tragic failure. Peter would have been recognisable to people because he was always at the side of Jesus wherever he appeared in public. He was the leading disciple. And his accent, his Galilean accent, was very different from the accent in Judea and Jerusalem. But he was in shock. He was still coming to terms with all the things that had happened, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane. And one of the other things that 
must have been difficult for him was that his impulsive action in the Garden of Gethsemane led to Jesus rebuking him. He got a sword out and attacked the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear, and Jesus healed the man. John tells us the man's name was Malchus. And here's Peter in the courtyard of the high priest. So Malchus might have even been there, though there's no record of it. Peter could fear recognition by the man that he had attacked with a sword just a few hours earlier. He had a sudden loss of courage. He was overcome with fear. And then the rooster crowed as the night turned to day and the dawn was upon them. And uh, Peter remembered what Jesus had said only a few hours earlier in the Last Supper. He predicted that Peter would deny him. Peter, of course, had been very angry about that at the time. But now he realised that Jesus had predicted he'd deny him three times before the rooster crowed to the next time. And that's exactly what had happened. And so Peter has a tremendously emotional response to this, realising suddenly how deeply he's failed Jesus. And he leaves the courtyard. He goes and finds some privacy and he weeps and he weeps and he weeps with tears of utter sorrow for what he has done. What a tragic story. Luke adds an interesting detail in the account. He adds the detail in Luke 22, verse 61. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter just at that moment when he denied him. Now, Luke doesn't explain how this could happen, but here we have Peter in the courtyard and Jesus in the house being tried. Possibly Jesus was being moved from one part of the house to the other. Possibly Jesus was being held in a separate part of the courtyard briefly while the Sanhedrin was in private discussion. Possibly a door opened and he could look out into the courtyard. But Peter caught a brief glimpse of Jesus who looked at him just at this moment. And this made his failure seem so much worse. At the end of this episode, we'll see what happens to Peter later on. But this is a very low moment for him. And the story is told very honestly and openly by the gospel writers, even though Peter was the leading apostle and the leader of the early church, the preacher of the first sermon on the day of Pentecost. But before all that, there'd been a terrible failure. We're now going to turn to Matthew 27, verses 1 to 10, which tell us an even more tragic story, a far more tragic story, the story of Judas Iscariot. We've traced how he gradually became disillusioned with Jesus and then suddenly made the decision he was going to betray him. We've traced the story of how he did that and how he successfully uh, led the guards to uh, capture Jesus and arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. But then what happened to Judas after that? Does he just disappear out of the story? No, there's more to be said about Judas. There's a tragic end that comes for him. Let's read this. 
Matthew 27 verses 1 to 10. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it's called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Judas's story is very, very tragic. He was almost certainly present at the high priest's house as well, probably in the house rather than in the courtyard. And when he realises that Jesus has been condemned, he realises that Jesus' execution is uh, almost certainly going to happen very shortly. He's overwhelmed with regret and remorse and guilt. And he gives the coins. He's been given 30 pieces of silver, which is a, a big sum of money, and he gives it back to the priests. He wants to just give it to them. But he ends up throwing it into the temple compound. He ran to the temple from the high priest's house in a state of distress and he just threw the coins on the ground. The temple was closed to the general public, but priests would have been there and they picked up the money. And they bought a field as a burial site. And Judas committed suicide by hanging himself. Now, there's one final detail which is the accounts of Judas's death in the book of Acts, which we need to add in. Acts 1, verses 18 and 19. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open and all his intestines spilt out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field in their language Echeldama. That is, field of blood. We need to connect these two accounts. And what actually happens here is that the book of Acts has slightly compressed the narrative and the story. Um, and uh, it says that Judas bought the field, but in fact, it was Judas's money that bought the field. And it was actually the high priests who carried out the purchase of the field. But uh, Judas bought it in the sense that he paid for it through the money that um, he had been, had been given and was returned to the 
priests. And then <clears throat> he fell headlong into the field, his body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. After he committed suicide, probably he, his body was put in this field by the religious authorities. This is a good example of where you get two accounts that you need to think carefully about to see how they uh, link together. And sometimes when the narrative is compressed, um, it is shortened and just a few details are highlighted, uh, you need the other part of the narrative to work out uh, what the uh, exact implication of that is. But what a tragic end for Judas Iscariot. Matthew 27, verses 9 and 10. Matthew comments on the significance of Judas Iscariot. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. This, in fact is two prophecies brought together by Matthew. Again, he's compressed, the, compressed this slightly. He's bringing together a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, and Jeremiah uh, uh, 19, verses 1 to 13, which is a description of something that happened um, in that area. And he's seeing some significance to events that happened in ancient Israel being recapitulated or fulfilled in a second kind of a way or in a typological way in the life of Judas Iscariot. The 30 pieces of silver are interesting because 30 pieces of silver are mentioned in the book of Zechariah chapter 11 verses 11 and 12 as the price given for the fee for the prophet, the uh, prophet Zechariah, who's also a shepherd for the people Israel. It's money given to him for his services. And Matthew is linking that idea with the fact that just as Zechariah, the shepherd who's a prophet, is uh, worth 30 pieces of silver, so Jesus is... In a, in a sense, worth 30 pieces of silver, the shepherd and prophet of the people in that particular time. Here, he's taking a, a concept from the history of Israel and he's seeing a, a, a fulfillment, something similar happening, which has a typological fulfillment in another generation. Similarly, this story from Jeremiah chapter 19 is taken as being significant. Now in Jeremiah 18 and 19, there's a very interesting prophetic um, issue going on here concerning a valley just outside the uh, city of Jerusalem, the Hinnom Valley, which is right next to the Kidron Valley. The two adjoin on the side of the city and it was used as a rubbish dump uh, in that particular time. And in this valley, there was child sacrifice going on and the Israelites were breaking God's law in all sorts of terrible ways. And Jeremiah 
was called on, amongst other things, to take a pot and to go down to this valley and to smash the pot as a symbol, a prophetic symbol, that the nation of Israel, because of its sin, was going to be smashed to pieces when the Babylonians came and took them into exile. So that's a story, very simply, of uh, Jeremiah 18 and 19, which is in the mind of Matthew. And so Matthew sees the death of Judas Iscariot as a smashing to pieces of a human life, rather like the nation of Israel is going to be smashed to pieces by God's judgment for its sin in the Old Testament. And as Judas is smashed to pieces, his life is lost in the valley, uh, in the field and in that valley outside the city of Jerusalem. So Matthew anticipates that Judas's life will represent the life of Israel as a nation. It too is going to be smashed to pieces by the judgment of God because it has not followed the revelation that it has been given through Jesus Christ. This is rather complex prophecy and a complex understanding of how it is fulfilled. And I've just given a very simple outline, this more detail that we could look at, just to try and indicate to you the kind of thoughts that Matthew had. He saw things that happened in the Old Testament and he saw them being recapitulated in a different context. And so he mentions them here as a form of fulfilment. Now, our concluding reflections on this uh, episode with two very, very sad stories is to think about Judas and Peter in the long term. Scripture makes it clear that Judas did not inherit salvation. He was judged eternally as well as dying prematurely. John 17 verse 12, Jesus says in his prayer for his disciples, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. Judas Iscariot accidentally fulfilled God's purposes by being the instrument by which Jesus was led to the position of dying, but he did not act in faith. He didn't operate in faith, even though he had access to Jesus for those years. There's a terrible tragedy there. But what about Peter? Peter was a man of faith. He was a man of uh, courage. He was a man of energy and emotion who did his best to follow Jesus. But he stumbled tremendously at this particular time. He denied Jesus. He was humiliated and he went out and he wept bitter tears. What happened to him? Well, Jesus, in his resurrection, appeared to Peter personally and also... He restored Peter in John 21, verse 15 onwards. There's a story of Jesus talking to Peter uh, on the lakeside in Galilee and restoring him and encouraging him and building him up again. And Peter knew that he'd been forgiven for 
the things that he had done wrong, that terrible denial, the, the other impulsive actions of his life. And he became a foundation, a really strong person in the early church. Now this is a really helpful thing to conclude our episode thinking about. Because I know that some of you listening to this will feel that sense of failure yourselves. Uh, you'll identify with Peter, as indeed I do. There might be failure in your life, failure to follow God whole, wholeheartedly, things you've done fundamentally wrong that you deeply regret, even as you're listening to this episode. Well, I want you to take courage from the fact that Peter was restored and the early church was willing to write into the Gospels that story about Peter's failure. They didn't cover it up. They didn't pretend it didn't happen. But they did also tell the story of Peter being reinstated by Jesus. And they did tell the story of Peter's dramatic role on the day of Pentecost and his tremendous influence on the early church and the many years he served Christ um, and the two uh, wonderful letters that he wrote that are in scripture for us. So if we failed, if we've sinned, we can be restored. The first thing we need to do is to own the responsibility for the things we've done wrong. That's what Peter did immediately. He went outside the courtyard privately and he wept and he asked for forgiveness and he received that forgiveness and he was then restored and glorified Christ for the rest of his life. We'll continue the story in the next episode. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.